Hey, hey! Welcome to episode 71 of the Authors Read Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Ryan. Today's guest is Cynthia Hayes, and she'll read from her book, The Big Ordeal. Hi, I'm Cynthia Hayes. Today I'm going to read to you from a new self-help book about coping with cancer called The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. A former journalist, management consultant, and hospital executive, I was busy with a happy, productive life. Then I was told I had endometrial cancer. I was scared, anxious, and certain that I would die from this aggressive disease. Despite a loving family and an abundance of support, I felt isolated and alone with these emotions. After surgery and six months of chemo, my doctors declared that there was no evidence of disease and told me it was time to go back to living my life. But the process of recovery was far from easy, and the more I talked to other cancer patients, the more I realized that I was not alone. That's why I wrote The Big Ordeal, to help you understand why you feel the way you do, and to know that those feelings are an expected part of the cancer experience. Most importantly, to help you learn how to cope with it all. As Dr. Shalom Kalnicki, head of radiation oncology at Montefiore Medical Center and Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, has said, quote, The Big Ordeal is a must-read for anyone facing cancer as a patient or loving caregiver. Through her research with patients and experts, Cynthia brings new insights and understanding to the experience of cancer, helping to reduce the isolation, fear, and anxiety so common with a diagnosis. I know that the empathy and intelligence shared in this book will help to ease the stress of a cancer care journey, unquote. So here's the introduction to The Big Ordeal. No one expects a cancer diagnosis, but that element of surprise, that jolt out of nowhere, becomes a defining factor in how we experience cancer, setting us up for a cascade of emotions that the disease and its treatment will provoke in weeks, months, and years to come. As unexpected as a diagnosis might be, the roller coaster of emotions that follows is actually somewhat predictable. Instant panic and fear of death give way to stress, anxiety, feelings of isolation, and depression. These affect patients' quality of life, hindering their adherence to treatment and often interfering with physical recovery. Angst and fear of recurrence remain constant companions for several years until either one achieves physical recovery, passing the magical five-year mark and eventually regaining emotional health, or the cancer returns, bringing with it anger, denial, guilt, demoralization, and sometimes acceptance of the inevitable. Of course, our personal histories, DNA, diseases, and treatment influence how we internalize and express our emotions, but the patterns are far more common than we might expect. Nearly 70% of patients report feeling stress and anxiety. Up to 60% experience fatigue, cognitive issues, or both during treatment and after. 16% of patients face major depression, and 10% experience post-traumatic stress disorder. Although the field of psychosocial oncology began in the 1970s, it wasn't until 2007 that the Institute of Medicine, finally acting on what was understood about the impact of emotions on physical recovery and quality of life, established standards requiring that the psychosocial needs of the patients be integrated into routine cancer care. And only in 2015 did the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer mandate that screening for distress be part of the hospital's protocol in order for the hospital to be awarded accreditation. 
Today, most hospitals have some type of social support program for cancer patients, but emotional health is not yet a mainstream concern among oncology practitioners, particularly in the outpatient care facilities where most patients receive treatment. In the crunch for time with their patients, and with a primary focus on eliminating the disease, medical professionals avoid emotional topics or dance gingerly around them or sometimes even stomp on patients' psyches without realizing the impact of their words. Given the cultural stigma associated with mental illness and emotional problems, we don't always feel comfortable raising the topic with our physicians or know how to seek support from the social service programs available meaning that few of us who are newly diagnosed with cancer receive any psychological support. At the same time, most books for patients avoid or only graze the surface of emotional topics, focusing instead on the physical and leaving us in the dark. The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer, addresses cancer emotions head-on, validating patients' feelings through survivors' shared experiences, and helping patients, caregivers, and even doctors better understand the emotional ordeal, the physical and chemical drivers of those emotions, and coping strategies to get through it all. My own ordeal started on a beautiful blue sky September day. My daughter and I were headed to a neighborhood salon for manicures. When my cell phone rang, I was surprised to see my gynecologist's name on the display. Having been in the week before for a regular checkup, I assumed it was someone in the office calling about a billing issue and answered as we continued walking. But I stopped short when I heard my doctor say I had flunked my pap smear. It had detected atypical glandular cells, she said. Probably it was nothing, but I needed to come back in for more tests. She was at the hospital in the middle of a delivery, so signed off quickly with assurances and instructions to call the office. It went by so fast, I didn't quite know what to make of her call. My daughter and I were on a mission with a deadline. We were going out in two hours, and our nails were not yet red, so I carried on without giving it much thought. Moments later, sitting in the salon, I called to schedule the follow-up procedures, but the office had already closed for the day. There are times when it might be better not to be such an insatiable Internet researcher. I had just a few minutes to use my phone before succumbing to the manicurist and quickly learned that atypical glandular cells were the warning signs of a particular type of uterine carcinoma that had grim survival statistics. I went from unconcerned to terrorized in an instant. Cancer already had a grip on my emotions, and it would be a long weekend of grappling with the possibility that I had a life-threatening disease. Everything is going to be fine, my husband assured me, feeding me the same line I had taught him to say years before when he had tried to solve a problem that needed only solace. But this problem needed more than a comforting arm around the shoulder. What if I did have cancer? At 57, I was too young to think about sickness and death, but it seemed unlikely that the pap smear was a false positive. I wanted to talk with someone who would understand my fears, but my best friend, the one who would have known exactly what to say to acknowledge the intensity of my feelings and be with me in the moment of foreboding, had passed away only nine months earlier from cancer itself. I felt isolated and alone. The endometrial biopsy the following week was excruciating, but not as bad as waiting for results. It was a week of suppressed terror putting up a brave front and a false smile while inwardly on the verge of tears or frozen with panic. I was home alone when the doctor called with the news. Cynthia, she said, I'm very sorry to tell you this, but the biopsy results confirm that you have cancer. The news hit with the force of a tornado, depriving me of air and upending my life. 
Instantly, my head ached and my heart raced. I had cancer, and not just any old cancer, but uterine papillary serous carcinoma. Even the name was scary, and it was an aggressive, fast-growing cancer. The nightmare I had kept under wraps for two weeks was real. I was in shock, but needed to act quickly. I needed scans. I needed to find a surgeon and schedule pre-op testing. Most of all, I needed my husband, who at that moment had a mouthful of cotton in the dentist chair. It all happened so fast, I barely had a chance to think, let alone cry. Phone calls and emails, recommendations and confirmations. By the end of the day, I was scheduled for a morning with the radiology team for scans of my entire torso and had appointments with two surgeon candidates. The scans would give us further insight into the depth and breadth of my cancer, but not until a surgeon had probed my inner organs and removed many of them would we know the stage of my disease, a prognosis, and a treatment plan. More waiting and uncertainty, and more dread. In the United States alone, nearly 600,000 people a year die from cancer. For centuries, the disease has been synonymous with death. A diagnosis was accompanied by a timeline, usually short, and encouragement to get one's affairs in order. But improvements in screening and detection mean that many cancers are being caught in earlier stages when they are more treatable. At the same time, breakthroughs in treatments are helping patients live longer with the disease and return to health. But that death sentence is still what we hear when we learn we have cancer. Like the roar of an approaching train overpowering the words of the speaker beside us, the diagnosis instantly overwhelms, blocking out information and insights that might help us understand how to deal with the disease and move forward with our lives. I was lucky, destined to join the ranks of the survivors. Although uterine papillary serous carcinoma historically carries a survival rate of less than 40%, my cancer was caught early. After surgery and another anxious week waiting for the pathology report, I received the good news from my doctor that it was stage one, consisting of a small single tumor confined to the uterus and barely dug in, which significantly increased my odds. It helped, too, that I was in New York with a top-notch care team expert in my type of cancer. Also, I was healthy going into the ordeal and had a loving support network, all of which eased the process. Surgery and six chemo treatments later, I was cancer-free. Five years after the diagnosis, the terror is as faded as my surgical scar. But the process from diagnosis to recovery was far from smooth and easy. Although my doctors were clear about the physical effects of surgery and treatment, we had few conversations about the emotional toll the process would take. And although my family was prepared to support me through the helplessness of surgical recovery, the nausea of chemotherapy, and the cancer-induced malaise, none of us anticipated the emotional swings, the anxiety, or the cognitive impairment that would accompany the physical trials. When I dissolved into tears at my fate on the fourth day after every chemo treatment, we didn't know that withdrawal from the steroids pumped into me as part of the treatment would lead to an emotional crash, and that the despair I felt so acutely one day would be gone the next. I was told to anticipate the loss of my hair as chemo progressed, but wasn't prepared for the loss of my identity as I shifted from high-functioning executive to obvious cancer patient with bald eyes and a blank stare, no longer on top of my game physically, mentally, or emotionally. While I often felt adrift in my emotional turmoil, as the months passed, I was surprised to learn that I was not alone. Conversations with friends and colleagues, even with acquaintances at the gym as I struggled to regain some strength, 
revealed that many cancer patients experience the same emotional volatility, the same anxiety around test time, the same relief mixed with fear when cleared, and the same urge to make something good of it all when cancer was finally history. And the more I spoke with patients and survivors, the more clearly I saw the patterns in how we respond to the ordeal. How to read this book. This book was written to help you learn from the wisdom of those who have gone before you, fellow travelers on a journey none of us wishes to take. Based on interviews with over 100 patients, including those newly diagnosed, in treatment, recovering, or facing their final days, it presents real-life situations and real emotions, as well as advice from real cancer patients, things they wish they had known going into the disease, and lessons they learned the hard way. Each chapter covers a particular phase of the process, from diagnosis through treatment of progression, recurrence, and recovery. I use patient stories to present the most common experiences while highlighting the myriad ways of dealing with complex emotions at a time of stress. With the help of medical experts, I've written an explanation of the science behind the emotions, what's going on in your body as a result of the disease and its treatment that is contributing to how you feel. And I've addressed some of the related issues that arise, such as dealing with intimacy as treatment progresses, communicating with your medical team, and the emotional benefits of exercise, stress reduction, and complementary therapies. This book is meant to be a guide. It's full of examples, information, and advice that will help you understand your psychological response and to see that while you are unique, you are not alone. Feel free to underline and highlight as you go. Take note of the parts that resonate with you and come back and read them again another day. Our emotions are fluid and what feels right one day may leave you scratching your head the next. An idea that seems ridiculous on first reading may be the solution you need when you view it again. I suggest you take each chapter when it's relevant and don't read too far ahead. It can be overwhelming to look at the whole sequence, but by focusing on one step at a time, we usually find the strength to deal with what's before us. I also recommend that you share this book with your loved ones and those in your support network. It will help them understand what you're going through and how to help, ensuring that you get the support you need. Whether you are newly diagnosed or struggling with a recurrence, I hope The Big Ordeal will give you possibilities and options that will help you with your own ordeal. Be sure to pick up your copy of my new book, The Big Ordeal, available everywhere books are sold starting February 23rd. I'd like to thank Cynthia for sharing her book with us today, and thank you for listening to the Authors Read Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to the book. If you'd like to support the Authors Read podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. Until next time!